some things that we kind of introduced as some foundational uh, principles for this uh, sermon series last week. But there were kind of three main points that we discussed last week as it related to the relationship between God and mankind from the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. And so I want to put those three points um, up on the, on the screen here to refresh our memory. So three things that we saw in Scripture. One is that God is a creator and that we are here by his choosing. Secondly, his desire is to bless us and provide more than enough for us. And then thirdly, he expects us to follow his commands. And so we looked at specific stories in Scripture that kind of um, exemplified those different points. We also discussed that um, all of us are born with this natural um, bent or this tendency towards authority in some respect, that we, we talk about this spectrum, that we fall somewhere on between compliant and rebellious, that uh, each of us are born with kind of a, a bent towards one of those perspectives. Um, and, but the reality is, is that no matter where we would self-identify ourselves on that spectrum, we all struggle with this issue of obedience. We are all born separated from God with a sin condition that has this driving force called selfishness. And even though we may be able to appear outwardly compliant, inwardly in our hearts, there are all kinds of just messy and deceitful motives, which God can clearly see, even if we're able to kind of fool the people around us. And so last week, our conversation took us right up to kind of the brink of Genesis chapter 3. So that's where we're going to start today. If you can open your Bibles up to just the third chapter in, right there in the front. We're going to take a look at verses 1 through 6 to start. Genesis 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So we talked about this big foundational issue when it comes to this conversation around um, obedience being trust, right? Do we trust that God's intentions for us are good. So it's no surprise that when Satan enters the story here, this is the first thing he kind of goes at. And he attacks us with this question of God's goodness here in this narrative. And God had given Adam and Eve this boundary that was for their goodness and for their thriving. He said, you can eat from any tree in the garden except this one tree. And it's interesting because Eve, like it's just like, this is exactly what God said. I mean, she knew exactly what she was supposed to do or not do, verbatim, right? And we discussed this cunning and deceit that Satan uses simply exposed the cracks in their character that was already there. 
because it doesn't take much of a cell job here <laughs> to move them, right? Their disobedience, it, it comes pretty quickly. It's like, yeah, okay, that sounds good. Let's go for it. It's like there's no like, hey, let's, let's think about this, or maybe we should go pray. And talk, God, you know, Satan came in, and he's telling us one thing. It's like, oh, really, it's good? Oh, yeah, yeah, let's try it, okay? It's quick, man. No hesitation. And in this scene, we also see this doctrine of free will on display, Right, this idea that God gives us this opportunity, all of humanity, the power to choose, understanding the, the potential consequences that came with that, that even before humans were created, that this, this was put into place. Remember, Jesus, our Savior, was there from the very beginning. Scripture tells us again and again that, that Jesus was there during creation, before the first human had been made, before the first sin had been, had been committed there was already a savior there to handle that problem. So God is not surprised by our disobedience. 18th century American revivalist preacher Jonathan Edwards had a great quote about the freedom of choice. Got it up here on the screen. It says, free moral agents always act according to the strongest inclination they have at the moment of choice. To say it another way, we always choose according to our inclinations, and we always choose according to our strongest inclination at a given moment. Let me put it in simple terms. Anytime you sin, this action indicates that at the moment of your sin, your desire to commit the sin is greater than your desire to obey Christ. If your desire to obey Christ were greater than your desire to commit the sin, you would not sin. But at the moment of choice, we always follow our strongest inclination, our strongest disposition, our strongest desires. If you could just leave that up there for a moment. What, what, what thoughts come to mind as you, as you read this? this is, I, I thought this was really compelling. Yeah. That we are obedient sometimes. Okay. Okay, so he says we are obedient to something, whether it's obedient to Christ or obedient to our own sinful desires. Okay, yeah, Jamie. I mean, I would say that it shows that we don't ever sin out of this sense of duty. Like, I wake up, I have to sin today. It's very much a free choice. Like, no, I'm going to sin today. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm going to push something off like it's someone else's fault. <clears throat> something out there. Whereas mm -hmm. this is showing like, no, this is the problem with sin is that our desire is to only sin. We're dead in our sin. Mm, yeah, just talking about this, the, the awareness that we have of, of choosing the specific sin um, in the moment, right? It's, it's definitely something that we, we choose uh, to meet some fleshly desire that we have at the time. Anything else? Sorry, yes. Every time we have that struggle, yeah. we have to give in to God instead of giving in to the flesh. Yeah. Yes, good. And we, yeah, we talked about um, just in that rest series a few weeks ago about fixing our eyes on Jesus, like how important the moment-to-moment -moment connection with him is because it just doesn't take long, right? We could be Eve saying, God said specifically this. And then just a few minutes later, oh, yeah, man, let's, let's have some fruit, right? I mean, just, man, it can just topsy-turvy, you know? I mean, literally this past week, my son's downstairs, right? <laughs> I get up on, well, I don't even know what day it was, 
and I'm spending time with Jesus, man. Things are going so well, right? He gets up early, so he's in there watching TV. I go back to my daughter's room. I'm doing my study. I'm journaling. I mean, I'm just so spiritual, right? <laughs> and then I walk out the door, and it's like he just does one thing, and it's just like everything just went in the crapper. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like I can just be just like that. It just the whole thing just flips, right? And, and because... I wanted control, like I wanted the morning to go the way I wanted it to. I wanted to hear the words that I wanted to hear, and I wasn't hearing them. I wasn't getting the response I wanted. Life wasn't easy for me, and it just was like everything that I just gained, I lost in just a moment, not staying connected and mindful of what was going on. R.C. Sproul said it like this. He said, we have within us a desire to please Christ, but that desire does not always win out when the moment of truth comes. You see, there's a war raging in our hearts and minds. There's this battle constantly going on between our spirit and our flesh. Paul frames it this way in the New Testament in Galatians 5.17. He said, the sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. To put it even more simply, Woody Allen, famous director, movie director, says the heart want, wants what it wants. Point blank. Okay? In the moment, Right? Everybody here with me? In the moment, <laughs> we can all lose sight of what's ultimately true to embrace a feeling or an experience that, that, that does something for us, touches this, what we feel like is this immediate need or this longing that we feel like we have, right? Even if it means doing something that we know is wrong, and may disobey a boundary that God has given us for our thriving. And every one of us knows what that's like. We all do. But the painful reality of those choices is that our disobedience comes at a cost. There is a cost for that. Let's take a look at, uh, back in chapter 3 again, let's take a look at the high cost of disobedience for Adam and Eve. So we'll pick it up in verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Stand up guy. <laughs> then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. <laughs> so what is the price? As you look back through those verses, what is the price that you see happening in, in those verses for their disobedience.
This is more kind of a relational thing going on. They what? They hide from God. Yeah, so there's a, a hiding aspect. Good. What else? How do you see, what do you see in their relational dynamics? Yeah. Yep. Shame entered into their relationships. Good. There's one more I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah. 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 The blame game starts, right? Yeah. Nobody wants to take responsibility, right? Yeah. Blame, shame, and hiding. As not much has changed. When you think about it, aren't those the same consequences that most of us experience today when we disobey God? We shift responsibility to other people. We numb ourselves because of the shame that accompanies maybe a poor choice that we made. We withdraw from God. We hide from community, from family, from friends, maybe not physically, but for sure emotionally. And the consequences that we experience hit us on every level. Physically, <laughs> our health suffers because we're really just living a lie. Right? Emotionally, mentally, we're a wreck because our world is unraveling because of the damage of the choices that we made. Things start brewing up. Anxiety, depression, anger, resentment. They're all kind of simmering inside of us coming out in kind of ugly and damaging ways. Spiritually, we feel far from God. Honestly, just kind of dead inside. Not really interested in worship or in community, fellowship with other people. And those of you guys that have, that have been in that place where it's like you knew at that time in your life you were being disobedient, like you see this pattern of all these things that are true. I don't really want to go to church. I don't really want to go to that group because then you have to face something, right? And you're confronted with truth and maybe love and grace and you just don't have the capacity for it at the time. And we see that the impact that our disobedience has on others and our relationships. I bet that didn't go well for Adam later on that he threw Eve under the bus. I bet there was a little argument that happened after that, right? The ripple effect of our sin is always more profound than we want to imagine. We want to kind of pretend that, like, my sin isn't really that bad. It didn't really hurt people that much. But it's always worse than we imagine. David describes the agony of his sinful choices in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. He says, when he kept silent about his sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And besides for the immediate pain we can suffer from our disobedience, there are also larger implications. Okay, in Romans chapter 5, Paul is kind of talking about that that sinful choice of Adam in the garden, the implications of that throughout history. And so in Romans 5, in verses 18 and 19, in verse 18, he says this, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, 
And then in verse 19, he says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, many were made sinners. Right? Really, everyone that's ever lived. Every human ever born into this world carries a reminder of the disobedience of our original ancestors in the garden. We all have this sin disease that carries with it this natural bent that we all have towards disobedience and hostility towards the ways of God. And there were immediately consequences for Adam and Eve as well. Back in chapter 3 again. Verse 16. It says, To the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand to take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of the Eden, chariot them, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Man, the narrative has shifted pretty quickly here, right? From the garden a moment ago being this place of like bliss and perfection where every human relationship was right and open and vulnerable to all of a sudden now we've got this, these destructive things that we talked about, the blame, the shame, the hiding, but then in addition to that, You've got all this suffering and pain, and God initiates these patterns that still carry on to this day, right? Women having pain in childbirth, the, the man now having to toil and work to, to produce the, the fruit and the crops, and everything that had been perfect before now is, is jaded and broken, right? So weather is not always going to cooperate, so you're not always going to have enough food, and you're going to work hard, and then, you know, the rains aren't going to come, or the too much rain's going to come, or... All those things that we talk about that are natural calamities now, none of that existed in the garden when things were perfect. Tornadoes, hurricanes, droughts, all those things were not known of until sin enters the world. And to top it all off, I mean, in addition to the physical death, has also added that, right? Death was not a thing before that time. And to top all that off, Adam and Eve were also removed from the garden which was like this initial place of intimacy and connection with him, and they're removed from that place outside of God's protection. But even in the midst of the unveiling of those tragic consequences, where do we see God's mercy on display in that passage? Where did you see God's mercy? Yeah. He made them coverings, right? What did he have to do for that to happen? He had to, yeah. He had to kill 
an animal to provide that, right? And this is foreshadowing of the sacrificial system that's going to be in place for the Israelites, of the shedding of blood of an animal to cover over the sin, but also foreshadowing of Christ who provides a covering for us in our sin. And so God is gracious to them, even in the midst of their disobedience. He provides for them. And here's the truth that we have to all keep in mind. If you replaced Bob and Kristen, my wife, for Adam and Eve in that story, the, the results would be the exact same. We would have done the exact same thing that they did. We are equally all prone to disobedience, to doubting God's goodness, and we are all in equal need of his mercy, every single one of us. And from this tragic scene in Genesis 3 pours forth this biblical story of humanity vacillating between obedience and disobedience for centuries and centuries to come, really leading right up to today. And God's response to this reality spelled out very clearly in Deuteronomy 11, 26 through 28, it says this, see, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today, the curse, if you disobey the commands the Lord your God, and turn from the way that I command you today by following other gods which you have not known. And in a lot of ways, that, that mentality kind of uh, connects with Jesus' teaching in the New Testament about sowing and reaping, right? You reap what you sow. If you sow seeds of obedience, you reap a blessing. If you sow seeds of dis disobedience, you reap curses. There's natural consequences to your actions. Now, like a lot of you, how many of you guys are reading through the Bible in a year right now? I know there's several of you that are, that are doing that. There's all kinds of apps that you can do. So I started doing that on January 1, so I'm a little bit over 40 days into it. So I've been hovering in Genesis and Exodus now for quite a while, the first couple of books, watching this story of blessing and curses kind of play out. And Exodus 32 um, is an especially alarming scene. So let me just set it up for you real quick. So the Israelites, right, were slaves in Egypt. And Moses, through all these plagues and miraculous signs, brings them out of Egypt. They get to the Red Sea, right? God pushes the water back, allows this group of three million people to cross on dry land to the other side. And they turn around and they watch God drown Pharaoh and his army as he releases the waters back again, um, a miraculous provision for them. And then they go out into the desert and God's presence is with them. There's this cloud by day that leads them and a pillar of fire by night. They watch as God rains down food for them every morning to provide for them. He brings water out of a rock for them to drink. Just story after story after story of God's miraculous, faithful favor and provision displayed time and time again. And now a little later on in the story, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to receive the law from God. God asks him to come up there. He says, hey, I've got some things to, that are going to be guidelines and principles for you. So the people watch Moses go up on the mountain. And then they watch the cloud of God's presence descend on the mountain. So they know God is there with Moses. They're watching it happen. 
Now, guess what happens, though? <laughs> Moses is up there for a while. In fact, he's up there for 40 days. It's a long meeting, lots to discuss. And the people down there are just getting restless. They're like, how long do we have to wait, you know, for what's going on? So they, they're just like, we can't, we can't take it anymore. And so they ask Moses' brother, Aaron, hey, can you, can you make an idol for us to worship till Moses gets back? So they, they, they get all this gold, they collect it all, they make this golden calf. You guys are probably familiar with the scene. And they begin to worship it. And Moses, a few chapters earlier in Exodus 20, had told them the commands that God wanted to keep. It's the first time like he verbally said what the Ten Commandments are going to be. And what was the first commandment that he told them? Who knows? Melissa, what did you say? You, you, you cannot have any other gods except me. And when he told them that in Exodus 20, if you go back and look at it, they're like, yes, we are on board. Absolutely. Write us down. Sign us up. Sounds awesome. Okay? What's the second one in Exodus? The second one is you shall make, not make, for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Keep that up there for a second, right? So don't love any other gods besides me and don't make any images, right? Number one and number two, and what do they do? They do exactly that, knowing God also says, if you do this, I'm going to punish you, not just you, but generational punishment will we'll bleed down to the next generation. On the other side, if you just obey me, I will bless you to a thousand generations. You see, his heart and his desire is to bless so much more than it is to punish. Knowing all of that, they still did it anyways because they wanted something in the moment. While they're looking at the mountain where their leader is meeting with God, they can see God right in front of them. How many times in our life have we, have we had this sense that God is right there and he's doing stuff? Maybe not even in our own lives. Maybe you can see that he's doing things in other people's lives. But you don't feel it for yourself. And so you chase something that maybe you see other people experiencing. Because God isn't doing it for you. Well, you can imagine how this story turns out. Moses, after that long meeting with God, comes down the mountain. He's actually holding the tablets. God put the, the commandments on two tablets. He's walking down, right? Hey, what's up? I've been gone for a while. What have you guys been doing? Right? And it's like he sees what's going on and he flips out. He throws down the tablets, breaks them. He goes over and grabs the calf, melts it in, into a powder, mixes it with water, and then makes all the Israelites drink it. It's almost like you got that puppy that you're putting his head down in the carpet, right? Where he peed on it. Like, bad boy, right? This is kind of like the scene of like what Moses is doing here. You want the calf? Drink the calf. <laughs> he is so upset. And it gets worse that day if you read the story. Because the priests end up killing 3,000 people that day who wouldn't repent of their sin. 
And sadly, though, this, this stiff-necked, that's what Scripture calls them, disobedient and stiff-necked people would continue to struggle through their journey as they're trying to get to this land that God has promised their ancestor, Abraham. And by the book of Numbers, chapter 13, so a couple books later, God had finally allowed the Israelites to get to the edge of the land of Canaan, this land they'd been promised, that Abraham had been promised, and that was going to be theirs. God was leading them to that place. And he tells Moses, he says, I want you to send some spies into that land and kind of check it out, find out who's there, come back, make a report. So the spies go out and they, 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 they look at the land and they're like, oh my gosh, it is unbelievable, way better than you could ever imagine. It's going to be amazing. Now, there are some really big and powerful people living there currently. Um, a couple of the spies were like, but we got it, we can do it, right? Joshua and Caleb, like, they're believers, right? Everybody else is just kind of like, I don't know. And the Israelites hear this, and they just start complaining and grumbling. Oh, we're all going to die, you know? You should have just, we should have just stayed in Egypt where at least we were getting some food and we could have just died there. Why did you drag us all the way over here? And then they, in fact, they even said, let's pick a new leader that will take us back to Egypt. Right? This is just crazy stuff. And this back and forth goes on for a while until God finally steps in and tells him this in Numbers 14, verse 30 through 33. He says, not one of you will enter the land, I swore, with my uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of somebody, and Joshua, son of none. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. It's pretty harsh, isn't it? Consequences, right? Not just for them, but for their kids as well. Their kids are going to have to suffer out here until they die. And then the kids are going to get to go into the promised land. Not one of the people that saw all those miracles and came out of Egypt was going to be allowed to go in except just a few I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's page 1633. <clears throat> this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, which was in Greece. It was a new, a new church that he had planted and, and told them about Christ. And he says this, we're going to read about 12 verses here in chapter 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. 
We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So Paul is writing to this new group of believers in Corinth thousands of years after the events that had taken place in the desert, saying, guys, learn from their mistakes. Don't repeat their disobedience. And he rightly said, this is a hard issue that they were dealing with. And, and he says, you know, if you think that you're above their mistakes, be careful. I don't know if any of you guys have listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which was a church that kind of was huge and then exploded and disintegrated about seven years ago and just had massive destructive impacts on people because of this narcissistic leadership environment they had there. I've listened to it. It's like 12 episodes and um, kind of this is the last episode today. So it's really kind of talking about the aftermath of the whole situation. And it's talking about some of the leaders who had been a part of it, some of the pastors who had been a part of it, and them having to reckon with not only um, the destructiveness that it's been for their own family, but how many other people they hurt in the process, and they've had to deal with that. But I'm telling you, as I'm walking around, um, I usually listen to it when I'm walking my dogs, I'm just, I'm just praying, man. I'm just like, God, I don't want to be that leader. Keep me humble. You know, help me to sit under the authority of other people and to, to be submissive and to listen to you and to watch for warnings and to check my heart and all those things. If I think that I'm beyond that, man, that's when trouble comes. That's when the enemy's like, oh, you're pretty sure of yourself down there. And I also know that we live under a completely different set of circumstances than those people in the desert did, right? We have the atoning work of Christ's death and resurrection to cover our sins. In Christ, there's forgiveness for disobedience when we repent and turn towards him. 1 John 1, 9 clearly reminds us of that truth. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We can be forgiven, but there are still consequences for our disobedient acts. Consequences to our life and to the lives of those around us. And God desperately wants to help us avoid those calamities. Those choices that leave us like our first parents, blaming, shaming, and hiding. One of the stories in that, that podcast that I was listening to was talking about a, a staff person who had hurt a lot of people, but he'd repented and through years of counseling and his, his pride and arrogance had been exposed and he was going back and making things right with as many people as he could, trying to sit down and have appointments and, and just confess his sin and ask for forgiveness. And he was just like, man, there were some people that were not ready to forgive me. <laughs> He's like, I sat down with one couple for like three hours and, you know, they were, they were angry. 
and there's consequences to things. Now, could, is that guy personally forgiven and, and made right with Christ? And absolutely. But that disobedience carries consequences. And, and those folks that he hurt might never turn things around. I don't know how the story ends. But I'm intentionally kind of painting a grim picture today so that we understand our desperate need for Christ. Guys, if you were to read my story, if you had a, a book that I gave you, the autobiography of, of Bob and his life, and you read it, 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 would, it would be the same arc as the Israelites. You would read it, and there would be stories of God's unbelievable faith, faithfulness to Bob, the way that, that God had showed up and done miracle after miracle in Bob's life and provided for him and just done some unbelievable things. And then you would read chapters where you would see Bob kind of like wandering off and, and worshiping and putting this hope and trust in things that weren't God. And you would see him hurting people, lies, deceit, indifference towards suffering, on and on. It would all be there in gruesome detail, if I was completely honest, if you knew everything. And guess what? <laughs> if I read a book about your life, it would be the exact same thing. This vacillating between right, the, the better parts of our nature and the worst parts of our nature just at battle, day in and day out, moment by moment. And we would all probably be a little disgusted with everybody else's story as much as you would be disgusted with mine and as much as we are disgusted with the Israelites or the Pharisees or whoever we might point our finger at and think that we're better than. The good news is in all that, though, is that we have a Savior who is working hard to shape our hearts and change our affections so that we don't cause just horrible damage, not only to our own lives, but those around us that we care so much about. I'm grateful for that. That's where I find my hope. <laughs> but don't take our choices lightly, guys. Next week, we're going to take a look at some heroes of our faith who we're going to learn from as they make some you know, they make some mistakes, but they, they, they obey in some ways that were just unbelievable. And I hope these stories are going to inspire us a little bit and kind of give fuel to our desire to want to obey, <laughs> to experience some of the unbelievable blessings and impacts that those folks had on the people that they were leading. So that's where we're heading next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this... this uh, time today has just been sobering. When you think about Adam and Eve in the garden and just, I mean, they had, they had it all. They had perfection. But there was something in them that it just didn't take much. One little seed of doubt about your goodness and the whole thing unraveled with really painful, any long-lasting consequences to the fact that, that, that their own kids were killing each other just a few chapters later. God, we are in such desperate need of you. 
I pray that we would have no, no hope in our own flesh and our own goodness. We desperately need you to come and save us and to redeem our hearts and to help us to obey and to do what's right so that our lives can be a blessing to those around us. God, if we've been in this place of disobedience and we are in this place right now where maybe we've been blaming or feeling shame or we've been hiding from you or others, I pray, God, that today would be a day that we could come back to you just realize that you've been there all along with a gracious hand <laughs> reaching out to us, desiring for us to repent and to come back to you. God, I pray that if we need to make things right and move in that direction today, that you would do that in our hearts. And God, as we continue to go forth in this series, God, that you would just give us, give us a heart that just desires to know you. So often I feel like our disobedience is wrapped around um, just false impressions of who you are and what your heart is. God, you are not withholding anything from us. In fact, you've been more gracious than, than we deserved. So help us to know that God so that we can desire to obey and to experience the blessings that you have and desire to give to us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you guys stand as we close?